Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Clive Roslin. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Tony Honigberg. Coming up this week, Fayez Mogal of Faith Matters tells us about the winners of the No to Hate Crime Awards, an event he founded. Rabbi Daniel Lichman of Reform Judaism will let us know why his community felt the need to show solidarity with the victims of an attack on the al Mosque. Kate Fulton will be finding out about the work of Stand With Us, who are helping to equip Jewish students with ways to deal with anti-Israel feeling on campus. Dr. Jeremiah Unterman talks about the book Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics. And Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will give us a recipe for Sukkot. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with Vivian Krieger. Members of two synagogues based in West Hampstead and Wilsdon visited their Muslim neighbours at a Cricklewood mosque on Yom Kippur after a car rammed into worshippers, seriously injuring two. The driver was one of a group of people who'd been behaving antisocially, drinking, shouting racist abuse and apparently taking drugs. The delegation from the two shuls said they stood side by side with the Muslim community as the police announced they were treating the incident as an Islamophobic hate crime but said it wasn't terrorist-related. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, said young Jews should feel pride in being British, Jewish and Zionist as she addressed 800 guests at a UJIA dinner. Mrs May took several side swipes at Jeremy Corbyn without once mentioning his name. In a wide-ranging speech that was greeted with a standing ovation, she pledged to build the strongest and deepest possible relationship with Israel and told the audience she was sickened by reports that some British Jews will leave the country if Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. Tributes have been paid to Israeli activist Ari Fould, who was stabbed to death by a Palestinian teenager outside a shopping mall in the West Bank. Mr Fould managed to chase after his attacker, believed to be 17-year-old Khalil Jabarin from Hebron, who he shot before he himself collapsed. Mr Fould, who was 45 and a father of four, was assistant director of Standing Together, a non-governmental organisation which provides support for Israeli soldiers. The former head of Magan David Adom UK, Ellie Benson, has died. He was called a legendary and inspirational leader, spending 14 years as chief executive of the Medical Emergency Service, during which time he helped to raise around £46 million for it. Daniel Berger, the current boss of MDA UK, said that Ellie Benson was a true gentleman and a remarkable fundraiser who'd helped enrich the lives of countless people. And the man best known for hosting TV's It'll Be Alright on the Night, Dennis Norden, has died at the age of 96. His wife Avril passed away just weeks ago. Dennis Norden served in the RAF during the Second World War and met his comedy writing partner Frank Muir in 1947. Together they created one of the BBC's greatest radio hits, Take It From Here, which starred Jimmy Edwards and June Whitfield. He became established as a TV presenter in the 1970s, also hosting a chat show called Looks Familiar and Dennis Norden's Laughter File. Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Justin Cohen, who is the news editor of the Jewish News, and he joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Justin, let's start with the front page. Yes, we're leading this week on some comments that were made by Louise Jacobs, the chair of UJA, at their annual dinner. 
this week. Really a continuation of the themes that we were seeing over the summer following the Kaddish for Gaza, concern about the level of engagement that young people have with Israel and about where that trend is going at the moment. And, and Louise Jacobs is saying here that we need to find a way to arrest a trend or risk losing a generation of British Jews in terms of their relationship to Israel. She's saying, actually, that the current situation represents the greatest internal threat to Jewish diaspora relations with Israel. I think quite stark comments from an organisation like UJA that really has at its heart building relationships between young people and Israel in terms of the tour groups that they take and, and year offs and so on. But also one of the things she pointed out in her speech was the work that UJA do and that so many people do and that President Rivlin is a great champion of in bringing together the various component parts of the Israeli society. And President Rivlin talks about four tribes, the secular Israelis, the religious nationalists, the Arabs uh, and the Haredim and, and how to bring them, them together and create a cohesive society. And I think the more that organisations like UJA can educate and show those different parts of Israel and the fact that, that there is more to Israel than what's on social media and what's on the news, the better chance they have in arresting this trend. I wonder what's turned the youngsters away from from Israel. I'm not going to say being Zionistic because you can still not be Zionistic and like Israel. What's turned them away, I wonder? Have they found that out? I, I don't think it's a particularly new trend. We saw some stats a number of years ago from JPR suggesting that the natural affiliation that was felt by parents and grandparents is not necessarily translated into this younger generation. But also, to be fair, to be frank, uh, certain policies that are coming out of Israel at the moment are not making it particularly easy necessarily for those young idealistic people to feel that Israel is their natural home. But the fact is there is much going on in Israel that would prove to be a natural home for those young people. Sure. Can we move on perhaps to the horrific attack on people attending a mosque? We'll be talking to Rabbi Daniel Lichman a little later in the programme about this, but you, you feature it in the paper as well, don't you? That's right. This is the Husseini Mosque in Cricklewood that there, w there was a, a driver outside the mosque that was, was kind of shouting abuse and driving into people, I think on the night of Kol Nidre. And in the wake of that, there were a, a number of people from local communities, local Jewish communities that visited the mosque to express, on, on Yom Kippur, to express solidarity and really to show the support of the community. I think at a time like this, where the Jewish community is also feeling under threat, it's important to recognise that we're not the only minority community that feels that way. Indeed, we're not. Our next article is about the sad death of Ellie Benson, I believe, of the MDA. Yes, Ellie Benson, former chief executive of Magendavel Adom for 14 years, up to his retirement, I think about five years ago, he also occupied many different roles within the community in UJA as a fundraiser in World Jewish Relief or the precursor to World Jewish Relief, the uh, Central British Fund. And originally, actually, he was the Muzkir. I understand he started off as the Muzkir of Young Paul at Sion, which, of course, is on, in the news a lot now as, as the JLM. 
But Ellie, I mean, he's someone that I worked with quite closely, not only in my role at the Jewish News, but also he brought me on board a number of years ago to write the newsletter that Magen Adom put out, the Red Shield newsletter. And I have to say, he is someone that you would not find a single person to say a bad word about. Extremely humble. Uh, people were calling him this week legendary. I know that that's not a, a word, an adjective that he would that would comfortably fit with him. He was so such a, such a humble person, such a kind person. And I think more people ought to know of his name. I, I don't think his name is one that was is best known in the community, perhaps, but it ought to be. And certainly his work over many, many years is something that I remember as well as him as just a, a great person, a, a, kind, a kind man. And lastly, we have a twinning, if you like, London in Tel Aviv. Yeah, many listeners will remember about a year and a half ago, there was the Tel Aviv in London Festival, a first of its kind that brought culture, fashion, food, all sorts of things, music to London from Tel Aviv. So artists were specifically brought brought over, top chefs were brought over to, to, to show their wares or to take, for people to taste their wares even. And this is really the reverse. It's going to take place next November between the 23rd and the 30th. It's just been revealed. And actually, Theresa May in her speech at the UJA dinner touched on this very briefly. But we've got a few more details in this week's paper. We're not only looking at Jewish companies going over there, then we're looking at general British companies. I imagine so. I think looking, I think it's not really companies even, it's, it's artists, it's, it's musicians, it's right. food. And yeah, it's, it's to showcase the best of London. I don't think they have to be Jewish at mm. all. Well, I think that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Justin, for being with us. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And on the line, I have Fires Mugal, who is the founder of the No to Hate Crime Awards. Now, we spoke to Fires a couple of weeks ago on the show about the awards. And the ceremony was held last week. And Fires is going to talk to us today about the winners. Fires, firstly, can you tell me who won the awards this year? As ever, we try to get a wide range of individuals to be nominated. So we had individuals with facial disfigurations who had challenged prejudice against them all their lives. These were young people. There was one individual who was in his early 20s challenging that. He won. There was an individual called Ahmed Nawaz who had suffered a terrorist Taliban attack, which led to the murder of over 130 of his, of his school friends in Pakistan, who won an award, who was with us on the night. We had individuals who were Srebrenica survivors of the genocide who had been doing education work in the UK. We had local authorities, and then we had members of parliament who were standing up. Paula Sheriff was nominated as parliamentary upstander for 2018. And then Luciana Berger won the Joe Cox Memorial Award. So it was a real range of parliamentarians, civil society activists, young people and organisations working across the board to challenge hate at this time. Tell me a little bit now just about the No to Hate organisation. Well, No to Hate were a concept that I came up with about three years ago. It's a concept that's part of Faith Matters as the organisation, but the No to Hate Crime Awards, I believed, would be a platform for hate crime agencies and those activists challenging hate to be able to be not just honoured, but to actually come together and feel a sense of solidarity within a family. 
Now, why did I want to do that? What's the purpose of that? Uh, apart from having a nice dinner and, and honoring people, the fact of the matter is, you know, the climate in the country has changed, both for Jews, Muslims, disabled people. Sadly, there is more hate around. And, and I believe that we needed to come together. We needed to find a coalescing point. We needed organizations to link up and to feel part of a bonded unit so we can work much more effectively. So the awards do that, but they also honor and put on the social policy map for politicians the fact that hate crime is something we need to actively continue tackling. So those were the reasons why uh, I came up with the concept. And, and then Richard Benson and I have developed that. Richard is the chair now. A Muslim and a Jew have developed that because I think both of our communities feel the sense of rising intolerance. And sadly, we have voiced it as communities, but the struggle continues on. What's the selection process for the winners of the Notage Awards? So the selection process was obviously when the nominations come in, we will then do a number of due diligence checks. So we don't want to have nominations of people, for example, who may be part of extremist groups or far-right groups. We ensure that that due diligence is done. It then goes on to a community judging panel, which involves a number of hate crime organizations. That's our community judging panel. I think at this point we had probably – about 14, 15 organizations at the community judging panel this year who were oversighting and sifting through the application process. And then they will push forward the runners-up to another panel. And that panel consisted of former ministers. It consisted of journalists. It consisted of people tackling hatred, but also grooming issues. So people who are social activists at a much higher level and that second judging panel then made the decision after you know detailed discussions that last a whole day on all of the runners-up that have been pushed from the community judging panel. How many people did you have put forward for it? There was approximately between, I think, 30 to 35 people were runners-up for the total award categories. So there were about between three and five runners-up for each award. And that's what went through. But But actually, we had over 160 public nominations. So, you know, that's where we were, 160 pu public nominations. There were actually about 210 in total. Uh, 50 of them didn't give enough information. 160 went through with detailed set of information. We ended up with 35 going forward. And then we had nine award winners and two were given special, three were given special awards if my maths works out. <laughs> it sounded okay to me, but I'm not a mathematician <laughs> either. Tell us about the evening. How did that go? How did that run? Fantastic. Fantastic. Look, I mean, fantastic. We had 350, 360 people in a room, all of them energized, all of them, I think, feeling the energy of young people challenging hate. You know, you look at Rory, that individual who was fighting facial disfiguration and prejudice against individuals with those kind of issues. Rory stood up on stage and said, you know, I've never got anything in my life. At points, I thought I'd commit suicide. At points, I thought, you know, I couldn't continue on. But I carried on. And this is another part of the commendation that society gives me, the strength to, to keep putting the message that actually there is hope for people. There is a future. Don't give up and keep going. You know, it's people like Rory that brought the house down. And I think that's what people took away from it, an energizing event, seeing the goodness in our society, seeing young people who – don't have to challenge this standing up putting up with a lot of nonsense in life just to give the message that there is hope that we can overcome and that actually intolerance can be broken through education and other ways and i think that's the purpose of what people took away from the night that there's a lot of work to be done but re-energized to do that work 
So this is intolerance against people with all sorts of problems, not just people with disabilities. So no, might this be right. religious intolerance, gender and sexual orientation and anything like that? It's a fairly wide picture, isn't it? A wide spectrum. It's a wide spectrum. So you're right. It's disability, it's faith, it's sexuality, and it continues on. The list will continue on. It would also, we also included misogyny in that. We also included misogyny. Now, it's important to say this. So if some people say, oh, well, but, you know, is misogyny a hate crime? Let me explain this. There's this public debate that's going on. Why did we include it? The fact is that if you look at, for example, anti-Muslim hate or anti-Muslim bigotry at a street level, it affects the majority of them are visible Muslim women who are the target of it. But we know from a lot of the work we do within the organization that a lot of these women, when they are abused, they are abused with anti-Muslim hate. They're also abused with sexualized language. And the perpetrator tries to use the sexualized language to demean and intimidate and sometimes humiliate the woman because she is perceived to be very religious with a headscarf on. But the reason he's also targeting her in a sexualized nature is because she's a woman. So there is a clear intersectionality of gender and the identity of being a Muslim. So, so we include that because misogyny does play a significant role in the language of hate that is directed towards women. Indeed. It's quite clear. Indeed. Do you intend to do the award ceremony every year, unfortunately? I mean, it would be lovely if you didn't have to, presumably. But well, um, is this something that's likely to go on on an annual basis? This will go on an annual basis. So three years, three years, we've been running these events now. It's the biggest we've had this year. So 360 people. Last year was about 210. The year before was about 130-odd. And so we're growing every year. Now, we're growing. It's a good thing. But the fact is hatred is also growing. So more people are coming in on board because they see that. So it's an annual event. It will continue on. I, both Richard and I, are considering how do we widen this out to Europe because if you ask me, the real battleground is Europe as well. The fact that the far right are taking hold politically in huge chunks of Europe today is a real concern. And the fact that far right politics are being legitimized in some of those countries means we need something like this. And I, I'm working with Richard to try to get this out there to mobilize Europe and get these agencies in different countries to come together and hold such events because we can put it on the political map. And by doing so, get some of civil society to push back of what's happening in Europe today. This obviously costs money, but how can people get involved with your organization? Well, they can email us on the notahatecrimeawards.org website. You know, please email us. We will come and engage, meet with you. If you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, if you want to be part of us, if you want to help organize, get involved. You know, the thing I would just say as a parting statement is... Right now, there is a battle for hearts and minds. Let's, let's be honest about it. You know, many of us 10 years ago, I've been doing this work for 25 years, 10 years ago, I would have never considered this country would be in a situation where, just for example, Jews and Muslims feel quite insecure. Who would have thought that? So nobody else is going to help us out this mess. We have to help ourselves. And that means stepping up. I say that Jewish communities have been stepping up for decades, millennia, for their rights just to live as equal human beings. And I'm saying that that fight continues on. The struggle continues on. But right now, given social media, given all the connectivity we have, we have to challenge this hate because if it takes root like a virus, it will take two, three generations to get rid of, or not get rid of, but reduce it. Mm. So now is the time to step up because if we do not, then everybody's rights are going to be affected. And the Britain we love and the Britain that took in 
the kinder transport, the Britain that took me in as a refugee from Uganda. I came in as a refugee from Uganda. That Britain may well be completely different Britain we ever remember than what we see ahead. We have to defend the values of this country. Fires Mugal, thank you very much for talking to us today on the Jewish Views. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, and we're very pleased to have with us down the line Rabbi Daniel Lichman of Reform Judaism. What we're not so pleased about, Rabbi Daniel, is what you're going to tell us about this shocking incident that happened over Yom Kippur. Could you just outline exactly what happened? Yes. Well, at a Muslim community centre in Cricklewood, the Al Husseini Association, after their evening lecture, a car drove in to the crowd of people leaving the lecture and the person in the car shouted Islamophobic abuse and three people were injured. Two of them remain in hospital at the moment. And I'll, I'll, we, I, found out, I found out about this on your people morning. It happened the evening before. And we were gathered for services very close by. We were in Cricklewood for our Yom Kippur services. And when we heard about it, it just, it just made sense to us that we should respond in some way. That we, Our community was gathered together there on Yom Kippur. We were all there. It made sense for us to, to do something, to stand in solidarity with them. Indeed. Which communities, reform communities, are we talking about then? Yeah, so this is the Sheikh Haim community, which is Hampstead Reform Synagogue and the Wilson Minyan, who held joint high holiday services this year. And that's part of a partnership that we've, been, we've, we've had for about a year now of doing joint things together. So the Sheikh Haim is an established synagogue that's been, been around for, for, for a while, and we're a new, a new community that's been around for about two years. And how, what form did the comfort and support you provided to these poor people who had been attacked or intimidated, yeah. should I say? Yeah, well, we made an announcement in Shaw, and we just had a, a community conversation where we asked people in the room who was, who was interested in what they thought we could do or in who was interested in going. And uh, a few people said that they were up for, up for going along. And so we gathered together after the Mossad service, and we went over to the mosque together. So it was about 20, it was 20 of us. And we went in and we greeted the people in the mosque. And we'd had, we'd had a, group, a couple of people go in advance to just check that this would be something that would be wanted and appropriate to do. And we found out that it was. And so we went and we greeted them. We said our names. We told them. We said how devastated we were to hear about this. And I listened to some of them talk about what had happened. So one young man told me about how he, jumped, he had to jump out of the way and he showed me how close the car had been to him. And another one told me that he felt very scared and he said that he'd, he was there first on the scene looking after the, the people that were injured. And we just listened. I mean, this was, a, this was in the afternoon, so we were so the kind of height of, our, height of the fast. So we were in a position to just be quite open and humble and uh, listen to their experience. We did have a gathering together afterwards where I said, uh, I, I told them we have a Jewish prayer for healing and, and I uh, said that blessing and translated it and also a prayer for peace as well. Did they know 
that this was happening on Yom Kippur? Did you feel it was appropriate or did they feel it was appropriate? Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's quite funny you say that because the first thing they said when the members of our community who went in advance to see what would be appropriate, the first thing they said to us was, hang on a minute, isn't it Yom Kippur? Aren't you supposed to be doing, are you supposed to be in synagogue? So that was quite a funny beginning to it. So we were very clear that it was Yom Kippur. I mean, I was, I'd just been leading services. I was still wearing my kit all. And actually, we had a we had a, a kind of funny moment where I said to them, you know, we we don't fast so often. It would be great if you've got any advice about fasting because you're familiar with it from Ramadan. And the response that we got was, well, the first day is the hardest. So that, that didn't help us too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Does anyone plan to go and visit the injured people in hospital? That's a good question. I think that would be a good thing to do. I mean, actually, I, I was invited by them to go to their to their commemoration central commemoration ceremony for the day of Ashura and uh, I was invited to speak in Marble Arch to their big gathering for Ashura so I said a couple of sentences I was introduced and they said that they were grateful to our community for having visited and I said a couple of sentences of solidarity with them this was to a few hundred people having done this now does this mean that the relationship between your shawls and the this mosque will go on and you can do other things together We'll see. I mean, we've we've invited them to to come and to come and eat a meal in sukkah. So that's that's happened, and we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And we've got each other's contact. I mean, I had very. I I was just as I said, I just saw that I just saw people from this community just now, and they greeted me very warmly. So we'll see what happens in the future. But they are we're communities in the same local area, so it would make sense to have ongoing ongoing connection with them. It's been quite a festival of uh, exploring interfaith relationships for us because we actually were supposed to be having our services in friends meeting in a venue that was unable to host us at last minute. So we actually ended up having our services in a Hindu community center in Cricklewood. And the Hindu community was really, really welcoming and open to us. They are, we, we got in touch in the three days before Rosh Hashanah saying that we'd lost our venue, we needed somewhere. And they said that they're people of faith and they want they, they they respect us and want to enable us to have our gatherings together and so it's so we've this Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah we've made connections with both the Hindu community and Muslim community in the local area this is a tremendously promising start isn't it good relationships between all the religions we're, we're really very grateful to you thank you very much Rabbi Daniel for talking to us thank you if you would like any more information about any of the things you've heard on today's program or any of the guests that have appeared here, then please go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with Jewish News. And I'm about to talk to Dr. Jeremiah Unterman, author of Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics. Now, I find that absolutely fascinating, Dr. Jeremiah, Tell me how it all started and what it's about. Oh, well, it really started over 40 years ago when I was a graduate student at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I was, my professors actually were teaching some really marvelous things about the ethics in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And I realized that this information was unavailable for the general public. So I went up to one of them and I asked him, I said, how come you're not writing this for the public? And he said to me, you do it. And so it took me some 40 years, but I finally did it. 40 years? <laughs> it took you all that time? Why well, did it take such a long time? 
Well, I was uh, doing a, uh, some other things. I was also an administrator for uh, different Jewish educational uh, institutions in the United States. My true love was academia or uh, serious study, I suppose. And I realized that when I came uh, finally back to Israel after having retired, thank God, from administration, I decided, well, it was time to get back to some, some really serious things. And I decided that uh, to finally write this book. And really, the idea is is that so much has been uh, said in the modern world about the importance of ethics of taking care of the poor and of the stranger, etc. And, and it's become a very big issue in Jewish life, in progressive Judaism, if you wish, or reform, conservative. There's a lot of emphasis on, uh, well, we have to go out and perfect the world, and we really have to uh, do what is uh, being sought uh, today by so many people in terms of ethics, and uh, we have to really gear Jewish life in that direction. And I realized that they didn't know that it was really the Bible, our Bible, from the Torah and to the prophets, particularly, that really invented ethics that did not exist in the way we think of in the ancient world. And I think it was, I thought it was time that people became realized this. And that's why I decided to write the book. Give an example of how, how the ethics, as you see them, how that ethics began then. I think that when you really, uh, one studies the text, the Bible carefully, one realizes that, and, and you compare it to ancient Near Eastern polytheism. So what you realize is that the God who's presented in the Bible is the source of goodness and that he cares for the humanity that he created, and he wants them to do well, and he wants them to succeed, and he wants them to have just societies. And that really plays out in the Torah. And you see that it's not that in ancient Near Eastern societies, such as Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Hittites, that you didn't have a concept of ethics, but ethics was uh, something which was a desire that wasn't always clearly stated what exactly it should be, and there were no ethical laws to speak of. In other words, I'll give you an example from the Code of Hammurabi, that Hammurabi has uh, an introduction and it has an epilogue in which the king says that he was appointed by the gods to make the laws and to take care of the weak so they wouldn't be oppressed by the strong, and to take care of the poor. And then you go through the 288 laws in the Hammurabi Code. There is not one single law on behalf of the poor. You go to the Torah, and there's all kinds of laws. There's <laughs> laws in terms of, uh, of, of feeding the poor and of taking care of their needs and making sure that that uh, they're able to exist uh, along with everybody else in society and and you have such laws, so for example, um, you only have laws on behalf of slaves. Slaves must also be free on the Sabbath. They are not allowed to work on the Sabbath. There's no such society in the ancient world which had a law like that. So, and all these go back to the idea of an ethical God who is the God of all. So the ethical God is the Jewish God and, and everything else is through him, as it were. Yeah, and again, I'm not uh, saying uh, you said him, and of course that's how we how we speak, but it's not a, qu a question of sex. 
in Hebrew, uh, gender uh, does not uh, necessarily indicate sex. For example, the way that one says ancestors in Hebrew or forefathers is avot, which has a feminine ending. And the one that way that one, the way that one says women in Hebrew is nashim, which is a masculine ending. So God is not a he or a she in any kind of reality that we recognize. But yes, it goes back to this one ineffable, uh, eternal God who was, and a key difference between that God and all the gods spoken of the ancient Near East was the idea of that God being supernatural, above nature, beyond nature, metaphysical. You've written this book. I just wonder what the response of the non-Jewish world has been towards your book. Well, actually, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because uh, uh, the book came out uh, in March of uh, 2017. And I don't know, it said maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 reviews. I don't know exactly how many. And it has been reviewed on a number of Christian websites and they and all the reviews so far have been extremely positive. So, in fact, at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, which is the largest society of academic scholars in the world, which is taking place in November in the United States, there was a morning session being devoted to the book, which is a combined session of both the theology group at the, the Society of Biblical Literature as well as a group of Christian biblical scholars. So... It seems to be doing uh, very well in the uh, non-Jewish world. That's that's with the scholars, but what about the general public? I don't know exactly how many people have actually read the book in the general public. I mean, I'm very happy that there's a number of newspapers in the United States that have reviewed it favorably. But I think even though the book is written for the general public, and uh, I think it's important to state because it's based upon scholarship, but I really wrote it for anybody who's interested uh, you know, it, I think it takes a while for it to go out there. For also, I don't have the name of someone like Lord Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Antrimon, it's fascinating, and I look forward to reading the book. Thank you very much indeed. Well, well, thank you very much, and I hope you will find it worthy. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. As university students prepare to start another academic year, the Jewish View's Kate Fulton has been finding out how they can deal with the potential epidemic of anti-Israel feeling being experienced by Jewish students on campus. This is Kate Fulton, and I'm here with Raffles Fulton, Raphael Ween, Jonathan Farrell. And we're going to talk about anti-Semitism on campus. We get into that time of the year when students are going back to university and given the media discussion about Corbyn and about anti-Semitism in general, we want to explore what's actually going on on campus. Raffles, I'm going to start with you. You're a university student. Yes, and I'm going into my second year and starting next week. Have you any experience of anti-Semitism on campus? Instead of anti-Semitism, I feel there's more of an anti-Israel stance by a lot of the organisations there. Luckily, our student union has, has actually been very good in stopping motions such as BDS Week. But my friends in other universities have had problems when a speaker came to talk about being pro-Israel. And there were campaigns outside, posters, protests, and people shouting. 
there's been the mock BDS checkpoints and other very anti-Israel things going on. And are you involved in anti-Semitism, anti-Israel on campus? Yes, so this year I did quite a lot. I was the Israel representative for UGS on campus and I was also the head of Israel awareness for the university committee. And I understand that you did a course with Stand With Us for a week. Yes, it was incredibly informative and gave me really good understand insight into the conflict and areas there. It was a week-long course and it was run by Stand With Us, UGS and a couple of other organisations and that helped us and it was nice to see the area and actually speak to people in the zone rather than just hearing about it. And we've got with us Raphael, you're from Stand With Us. I am the executive director of Stand With Us UK. We're an international organization, an educational charity about Israel, where we do provide educational materials and sources for anyone looking to support Israel and stand up for Israel, wherever that may be, whether in community schools or on campus. How are you advising young people who are maybe a little bit concerned about being on campus and about Israel issues, what are you advising them to do should they come across any anti-Semitism or any anti-Israel? Well, first and foremost, I think reporting it is, is very important. Students now all around the UK unfortunately have to stand up and defend themselves for being Jewish and for supporting the state of Israel, and that obviously shouldn't be the case. Having said that, it, it is important for them to report it to certain organizations within the Jewish community, CAA, CST, and so on. I do urge them also to approach Stand With Us. We have representatives on many campuses around the UK, and we'll get to that in a second, but they can approach us and we can give them all sorts of materials and tools, practical or other, to stand up and support Israel within their societies and on campus. And John, I just want to turn to you for a moment. What has been your involvement with Stand With Us and also your involvement with anti-Semitism on campus? I now work for Stand With Us as the Director for Student Affairs. Last year I graduated from my time at university where I was involved in setting up a Friends of Israel Society. And my experience really from the beginning of my university time was seeing that the way that the debate about Israel was handled often resulted in Jewish students feeling targeted, feeling attacked and really undermining and the legitimacy of their right to express themselves and express a connection to Israel, even if it wasn't in an overtly supportive way. And so I was involved in setting up the Israel Society at the university and um, with the help of Stan with us and a small group of active students on campus we're able to try and provide a platform for pro-Israel students, Jewish and non-Jewish. I myself a Christian, I'm not Jewish, but we provided that platform to educate others about what is the story of the people of Israel and how do we effectively communicate that to the 80% of students who don't know but need to have the Israel story told because it's there's such an imbalance in the academics and in the student societies when it comes to Israel. Sorry, I just have to pick you up there. I'm blown away. You're not Jewish yourself, and yet you are an incredible friend of Israel and a supporter. Just quick aside, how did that come about? So I grew up in a Christian family, and my Christian upbringing gave me knowledge of two things, that the Jewish people weren't just a religion, they were in fact a people, and that their entire origins as a people began in the, nation, in the land that is Israel. And I knew those two things when I went to university, and I understood that therefore when people were saying things like the Jewish people are a constructed people, although there's no historical connection of the Jewish people to the land, I knew these to be false. And my faith and the history of my faith and the historical evidence that points me back to the land of Israel and to the Jewish people provides the evidence against what is being told us by BDS. Well, as we say, kolakavod. 
I want to go back to you, Raphael. You said before you hinted there were sort of practical things that we could do and other things that Stand With Us will do for students on campus. Can you elaborate? So our activities at Stand With Us in the UK split into two. We have campus activity and community activity. We have three programs for students. One, a freshers program called Stand With Us Connect. We have an Emerson Fellowship, which is for students in the second and third year, generally leading societies and Israel and Jewish societies on campus. And we have a sixth form program as well. They're all being launched on the 27th at the embassy. And that's our campus. Our community efforts are projected to all communities, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, where we offered tailor-made programs, three-time meetings for any community that would like such events, where we give practical tools, how to answer tough questions, historical overviews, updates of Israeli politics today, and many speakers of that endeavor. And if people want to, listeners would like to get in touch with you about what you're doing on campus, or in fact, as you say, with six formers, how do they do that? How best to get in touch? best way to get in touch is obviously through our, our website or on Facebook, Stand With Us UK on Facebook. We reply uh, very quickly and we, will, uh, we are open to running any new programs for any communities that see it fit. Excellent. But turning now to very sort of specific problems that students and others may be facing, what would you say are the, the things that, what sort of language is being used? What are the main things that you're finding that students get worried about? So now it's very complex. We're an Israel education organization, so we don't deal specifically with anti-Semitic events. Having said that, often there is a correlation between the two, and, and some it may be unclear as to when it's anti-Semitic and when it's anti-Israel, and often the two are combined. So often facing troubling events that are, may pose as anti-Semitic or anti-Israel, we're here obviously to support our students and, and give them the tools in order to differentiate between the two and propose reactive responses to these. One of the many things that our students come to us with concerns about are particularly centered around the way that Israel is talked about as an apartheid state. And this culminates in a campaign every year um, called Israel Apartheid Week, which is a big anti-Israel campaign which seeks to undermine the cause of Israel and under undermine the story. And so our challenge is, is to retake the narrative, take back the narrative around Israel on campuses, encouraging and empowering students to know their story, know their personal connection to, to Israel, and to be empowered to communicate Israel's story on campus. And that means counting the misinformation that the story of the Jewish people began in 1948. And really going back to, to the start of what is the story of Zionism, what is the story of the people of Israel, and showing our fellow students that there is that story out there, and that is fundamental to peace and educating one of the things that we hear a lot about is that some of the Jewish students on campus, they're not very well educated. Are you finding, Raffles, I'm turning to you now particularly, on-campus people are not in the know what's going on in Israel? So I feel for people actually involved in the JSOC heavily, we have quite a lot of awareness and events to show people about Israel. When it was Israel's anniversary being created, we had a big series of talks and events about it but i feel the vast majority of students that aren't pro-israel aren't really anti-israel will just see a stand walk over and they'll be convinced quite easily by whatever the flyer they're giving out says and this might be pro-anti-israel so one thing that we try to do a lot of on campus is target that majority and inform them about the truths about israel are there any pieces of advice that you would like to give our students uh, one piece of advice is to, to stand tall we believe that 
no matter what the challenges are, you have a right to be who you are and to believe what you believe in. And that's what we are here for in Stand With Us. I specifically moved from the Israel office to Stand With Us UK just a couple of weeks ago. And the very reason of me being here is to, to give the chance and support for students all around the UK to stand up, to believe what they believe, to walk around with a kippah or a Jewish star and stand up for, for Judaism and for their Israel story. And one message I would give is just that, that you're not alone. It's so important that you know that there is a community of students all across the country who are doing the same thing, who are fighting for Israel, who are standing up for themselves and their societies and for the way that Israel is perceived. And Stand With Us is here. We always, it's a bit cliche, we say we're a family, but we really mean it. We are a community that is there for students, thick or thin. And they will have to leave it. Thank you all and good luck to the students for next year. The Jewish Views, Kate Fulton, speaking to Raphael Vine. Jonathan Farrell and Raffles Fulton, someone she knows well. You're right, it's her son. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And Denise is back now to give us a recipe for Sukkot. What have you got, Denise? And what have we got today, making it deep and meaningful, is my seven species salad. I like to take this as a little biblical dish. So what is the seven species? They are wheat, barley, Figs, olives, dates, pomegranates and grapes. And this is what my salad is made of. So it's incredibly colourful and it's deep and meaningful. So what I've really done is put all these ingredients together. Not only does it make it look pretty, taste beautiful and nutritionally good because of all the, the fruit, the vegetables in it, but it transports well into your sukkah because what happens is that somebody like myself who has a sukkah, you're forever up and down like a yo-yo. The sukkah is tiny. There's only so much food and dishes you can put in the sukkah on the table because there's only, there's only so much space. But this is really easy transport. Nothing's going to boil over. You can never have too many salads and you can make it in advance. So I love this recipe because I do a huge amount of entertaining over Sukkot. And you can make a big batch and it, it's easy to serve too. And you can eat it with either well, you can eat it with meat or fish or anything. Because it's completely thorough. Wonderful. So yes, so entertain with style, entertain deep and meaningful and entertain with all your seven species. It's making me hungry already. I can't wait. To, I, I think I might try that recipe myself, Denise. Now, if you would like to get the recipe, you can either go onto our website, jewishviews.co.uk, or you can go to denisekitchen.com, and the recipe will be there. Thank you, Denise. Thank you. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. It comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. I have a name for the day after Yom Kippur. I call it Dentist Day. And the reason I call it that is because before we go to a dentist, we do something very, very normal. We clean our teeth very well because we want to go to the dentist and get a good report. And then we go to the dentist after really cleaning well, and the dentist tells us, you could do better, you got a few... You know, plaque here on your teeth and you know please make sure when you go back you know you you look after your teeth and you're sitting there in the chair and you're like you know what I will make sure I'm going to go back and I'm really going to eat better with my food I'm not going to eat those sticky foods I'm not going to so I'm going to brush twice a day I'm going to floss every day I'm going to get by mouthwash I'm going to do exactly the way I should because I know that's how I should look after my teeth and then you go home and the day after dentist is really not easy because you fall into your bad habits. 
and you do start to not floss every day and you do start to not brush your teeth for 30 seconds in the way you've been told by the dentist. And that's, in essence, what Yom Kippur is. Because we prepare for Yom Kippur. The whole month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah, blowing the Shofar, and then comes the day itself. And we are fervently in prayer. al Khait, looking back at the year and saying, how could we have done what we did? You know, God, I'm going to improve. I'm going to make sure this year I don't do what I did last year. I'm not going to fall back into those same mistakes. This year will be different. And then just like our dentist visit, the day after Yom Kippur, there's where the challenge begins. As my rabbi once said, yeshiva begins when yeshiva ends. You know whether or not you've been successful in yeshiva when you come out. Yom Kippur begins when Yom Kippur ends. Have we really changed? Are our lives any different? It's very easy to be so fervent and so holy in Yom Kippur. The challenge comes the day after. Can we make sure for the rest of the year we live up to those holy ideals that we thought and hoped for ourselves on the holiest day of the year? Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK, for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to all of our guests, Fayez Mugal, Rabbi Daniel Lichman, Raphael Wine, Jonathan Farrell, Raffles Fulton, Dr. Jeremiah Unterman, and Denise Phillips. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Clive Roslin. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Tony Honigberg. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.